John chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. Let's read our text. And it says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now we remember that in John chapter 5, we have been coming through kind of a discourse of Jesus has been having with the religious leaders of the time, the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus are having a conversation. And uh, the issue is that Jesus has been calling God his own father. And in doing that, he's making himself equal with the father and therefore making himself God. This is a blasphemous statement. We're going to learn more about that here in just a minute. But this is the issue. This conversation started, really, Jesus has been going in one long discourse here since about verse 18. So if you look back up there about verse 18, it kind of tells us a little more of what's going on. It says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then beginning in verse 19, Jesus goes through all, and he's continuing on. So we're picking up kind of in the middle of Jesus' response to them uh, really wanting to kill him. And so in verse 19, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. 31 through 47 is just part of this discourse with the religious leaders. In verses 19 through 30, we saw that Jesus is saying that he is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. We talked about the Trinity last time we were here. We talked about how the Trinity uh, is completely equal, perfectly equal, in fact, but we see Jesus taking a submissive role. Does that mean that Jesus is lesser God than the Father? Well, we know that he's not, but he willingly takes on a role that submits to the Father. So there are distinct roles within the Trinity, but within the Trinity, they are all 100% fully and equally God. Okay, so we know that. And we also know, just one last thing there, 
is that there is a unity in the divine will. That is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all have one will, and they do not contradict each other. Jesus does not desire something that the Father himself doesn't desire. The Holy Spirit doesn't desire something that both the Father and the Son don't desire. There is unity in the divine will. God cannot be divided amongst himself. It makes sense when we think about it that way. So we pick up in verse 31, and uh, we're hearing not so much about who Jesus is, because Jesus has just given his own testimony. And let's just read back verse 31 and 32. He says, If I alone bear witness about myself, which he has just done, we just kind of went over that, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, let's get it clear. Jesus is not saying, the stuff that I've said before, and never mind, it's not true. He, what he's saying is, according to your law, if I bear witness alone, your law says it cannot be true unless it is verified by two or three witnesses. That's his point here. He's saying in order for you to get it and for you to let it sink in, this needs to be verified by two or three witnesses. Okay, Deuteronomy 17.6 Deuteronomy gives us a little bit insight to that on the evidence of two witnesses or of three, the one who, uh, uh, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So we just saw in the previous text when we were in John that Jesus was bearing witness about himself. Witness one, he's bearing witness about himself. Saying, but if I alone bear witness, that's not good enough for you, religious leaders and your law. There needs to be someone else who bears witness. And he says, there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. So I'd like to think about it this way this morning. Let's, let's kind of put it into a modern context of a courtroom setting. So what we have is the Jewish religious leaders are uh, prosecuting Jesus, and they're saying he's guilty of a particular crime. And the particular crime that he's guilty of is blasphemy against the holy God, right? And the consequence for that is death. It actually says that. Uh, Leviticus 24.16, if you want to look at that reference. If you blaspheme God, you will be stoned to death. And so, for them to say as the religious leaders, you're blaspheming God, we're going to put you to death. Now, according to their law, they didn't see anything wrong with that, right? So that's what they thought they should do in that situation. So we have the Jewish religious leaders accusing Jesus of a crime, blasphemy against God, and now it's, it's Jesus' time to kind of defend himself. And so they say, Jesus, who do you call to the stand first? And he says, well, I call myself as my first witness to prove my innocence. So Jesus goes and he takes the witness stand. And he says, I am the son of God. I am the son of man. And we've read that. He is born witness about who he is. Now he steps off the stand. But before he does, he says, but if I alone bear witness... You're not going to accept that. So there needs to be another witness take the stand. Who does Jesus call to the stand? But before we get to that, I have something in your notes here. I believe this is the first thing in your notes. Let's make sure we all know that the witness is going to confirm that Jesus is equal with God. Because that was the claim. Jesus was making himself equal with God. Jesus is defending himself. 
and he says, I bore witness to it, and now I'm about to call another witness, and you better brace yourself for the witness that I'm about to bring. Because who does he bring to the witness stand but God the Father? There is another who bears witness about me, and it is God himself. I want to read John 8, 17 and 18 because it, it, it helps. Jesus, he, this is very clear words here. John 8, 17 and 18. It says, In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, one, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me, two. Here are the two witnesses. Now, I'm, I'm kind of saying that again and again because it's going to seem like in our text there are multiple witnesses that he's calling, but... It is the witness of the Father that matters. So, we think about it this way. The Father then comes and takes the stand. He's in the, he's in the, the, the witness stand now. And he is about to give his testimony, his witness, to Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, fully God, fully man. And when he does, he brings three things with him. Three pieces of evidence to prove that he is who he said he was. And so we're going to look at those three pieces of evidence that God the Father brings with him. And the first is this. The Father's testimony through John, that is John the Baptist. Let's look at verses 33 through 35. It says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He's basically saying, I, I just really want you to get it. So I'm, I'm bringing up John. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Okay, stop. That's the first piece of evidence. God the Father takes the witness stand. He says, I have three things to present to you today to prove that he is equal with me. And uh, the first thing is this, is that I sent John the Baptist to bear witness. That's piece of evidence number one. If you would, just turn back to John chapter 1 in your Bible. John, that is the writer of the Gospel of John, has already talked about John the Baptist. Look specifically at verse 19 of chapter 1. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then are you? Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. The religious leaders, it's the same group of people. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. Now skip down to verse 31. I myself, this is John the Baptist, I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, listen, verse 34 is very important. Listen to what he says. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. There it is. John the Baptist said it himself. But what's, what's interesting is, remember, that this is the Father's witness. This is what the Father has done. So look at verse uh, 33. I myself did not know him, but 
He who sent me to baptize. Now, who is that? That's the Father. There you go. He said, he who sent me. The Father has sent me to baptize, right? And it says, and we see the Trinity here on perfect display, right? The Father sent me, and he said to me, he on whom you see the Holy Spirit descend, that's the one. That's him. So we see Father, Son, Holy Spirit all working right there at the baptism of Jesus, which is awesome. And then, so we see that John makes this very clear statement. I have seen, and I bore witness, that this is the Son of God. Pretty good claim. Now, here's the problem. This is why Jesus brings up John the Baptist. It's widely accepted at this time that John is, John the Baptist, is a prophet from God. It was accepted. In fact, there was right after the days of Jesus, there was actually a group that got together and were worshiping basically John the Baptist. They thought John the Baptist was it. It was a cult. It was very widely accepted that John was sent from God. So Jesus asked them one day, I'm going to read this out of Luke 20, 4 through 6. This is a great question, and it gets to the heart of the issue. Jesus says, to the religious leaders, the same group of people, listen to the question John, that Jesus asked, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say it was from heaven, then Jesus will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, they are convinced that John is a prophet. Do you see the issue? Is that all the people are convinced that John is a prophet sent from God. And what did John say? Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, so Jesus says, okay, well listen, was John a prophet of God or not? If you answer yes, then you have to admit that I am the Son of God. You have to admit it. But if you say that he is not a prophet of God, prepare yourself because all the people are going to stone you to death because they think he's a prophet of God. Now, they were in a sticky situation. So what did they say? Nothing. They didn't respond. Uh, pretty amazing story. But this is what Jesus was up against at the time. So this is why he brings up John the Baptist. And he's saying you're having a real hard time coming to terms with the reality that John was sent from God. He said that I am the son of God and he is right. Listen to him. That's the first piece of evidence. So, basically he's saying, if, if John was a prophet of God, you are not rejecting John's testimony. You are rejecting God's testimony. Because God is speaking through John the Baptist. Now, it also says he's a burning and shining lamp. Remember back in John 1, he says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light to all, so that all may believe. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. It's kind of like a lamp in a shed. John the Baptist was a lamp. A lamp is not a light. A lamp holds the light up, right? If we think about our own lamps, it holds something up, and you put the lamp in so all can see the light. That was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not the light. He was the one that held the light up and put it on display for the world to see. Okay, so piece of evidence number one, John the Baptist. That's pretty good. You probably should have it at that, but he says, no, I got more. Second piece of evidence. The Father's testimony through works. Verse 36. John chapter 5, verse 36. It says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So he says, I have something even better. Listen to this. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Before this, we have Jesus doing several things, particularly in the Gospel of John. 
Chapter 2, Jesus cleanses the temple. We talked about that. And when Jesus cleansed the temple, what is the question the Jewish leaders asked him? What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It's significant that we know as Christians that the greatest sign that Jesus ever did, the greatest miracle, the greatest work that Jesus ever accomplished was his own resurrection from the dead. That was his greatest and final, his finale, right? The grand finale was his resurrection of the dead, which really happened. He was dead, and then he was raised to life. That's a great miracle. They said, if you'll just show us a sign, Jesus, we'll believe you. I remember being a kid. I had heard of God, heard of Jesus. And I remember sitting in my room in, in the dark, laying in my bed. And I remember thinking, and I probably said it out loud. God, if you're real, turn my light off. Or turn it on or whatever it was. Turn my light on. And then I'll believe Seems pretty simple. Here's the thing, though. No, I wouldn't have. No, I wouldn't have. There would have been some other explanation. Because as Jesus gives signs to these religious leaders who asked for signs, what did they say? No, you're not. You're not the Son of God. Yeah, I saw what you did there, but you're not the Son of God. doesn't matter what he did for them. How about his resurrection from the dead? Did that make them believe? Well, majority, no. They still didn't believe. What sign can you show me for these things? John chapter 2, that Passover feast, John chapter 3. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. We know you're a prophet from God, and you say you're the son of God, but we know that can't be true. So who are you exactly? doesn't matter what he did. They just weren't convinced. It wasn't enough. So here's some more public signs that John has told us about. We had the woman at the well, right? This man told me all I ever did. That was in John 4. Again in John 4 was the healing of the official's son. And then there was the sick man at the pool um, in John 5, 1 through 15. Jesus does all these public signs and still we have Jesus arguing with them. What You can't be. It can't be what you say. Then we go down and we remember, why did John include any of this in his gospel? Why did John include what we're reading today? What was its significance? John 20, 30, and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. We are those who believe that the signs that Jesus performed pointed to something. Signs point to something. Signs signify. And what did the signs signify? That He is the Son of God. And we believe it to be true. And by believing that, we have life in His name. So the miraculous works of Jesus serve to prove that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and He is. So that's the second piece of evidence that the Father brings. Third piece of evidence. Look in verses 37 through 39. 
And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Let's stop right there. It's so significant to know that these Jewish religious leaders were walking around with gigantic boxes on their head with scripture in it, so that they may bind it to themselves. And Jesus confronts them and says, you've never heard from God, you've never seen God, and you don't know what the word of God says. To the religious leaders who already wanted to kill him. The culture that we live in, the mindset that we live in, the philosophy of our age is called something uh, of this name, postmodernism. Postmodernism basically says this, if you boil it down, postmodernism says, postmodernism says truth is relative. Relative is taken as the opposite end of the spectrum as objective. An objective truth, an objective truth would be, this is a computer. That is objective. One plus one equals two. That's objective. That is, you, you can't have an opinion on that. It's the truth. But we would say all truth is true truth. But some would say there is something that all truth is, is relative or subjective. Now, we would say some truth in a matter of speaking is subjective. And I always talk about people's shirts, that my shirt is either a good-looking shirt or it's not a good-looking shirt, and you can have your own opinion about that. That's a subjective thing. But to say that all truth is relative is another thing altogether, isn't it? Because I could say Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He is the Son of God. And by faith in his name, you might have eternal life. And someone would say, that is great for you. That's a great truth for you, but that's not true for me. That's the world we live in. That truth is relative and subjective. But that is not true. Right? The only truth they know is that there is no truth that can be known which doesn't make sense. That is, you are free to do what you want. You are free to believe what you want. You are free to be who you want to be because there is no absolute truth. That's the world. We do not believe that. We believe there is an absolute truth. We also believe in something that's called a meta-narrative. A meta-narrative is the grand story that gives true meaning to all things. That it is the one great overarching story that has a beginning and an end in all the middle. It has a great climax too. And it finishes with the glorification of his saints. Living with him for all eternity. We know the end of the story. We know the middle of the story. We know the grand central figure of the story. Jesus Christ. I'm going to read a quote here from Albert Moeller. He says, The Christian gospel is nothing less than the meta narrative of all meta narratives. For Christianity to surrender to the claim that the gospel is universally true and objectively established is to surrender to the center of our faith. Christianity is the great meta narrative of redemption. And so we can say this The Bible 
tells us of God's unchanging plan for his creation, and it centers on the redemption of fallen humanity in Jesus Christ. God is the author of the story, and it's not open for debate. He's written the beginning, the middle, and the end. The story is written. You know, the Bible was written about, oh, a span of, you know, 1,500 years or so, and it had about 40 authors, only about 35 we actually know by name. But don't you know it all has the exact same point? All of Scripture has the exact same point. It is all pointing to one central concept. I want to read 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and from childhood how you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. The sacred writings of the time, basically we understand to be our Old Testament. And so Paul was telling Timothy, your writings that you have of God, guess what they point to? Faith in Jesus Christ. Or Luke 24, 25 through 27. This was on the road to Emmaus, the risen, the resurrected Christ. He says, he said to those who didn't think that Jesus was really the Christ, they were disappointed. Now, we thought he was the savior of the world, but he's dead. Uh, he said to them, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And listen, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I read a book, and I think it was my very first semester of Bible college. This book has stuck with me. It's by Edmund Clowney. I think I mainly just remembered his last name. But I do remember the purpose of this book was to show, to help you understand that all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, points towards Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. Just as we see how Genesis points to the Gospels, we should appreciate, too, how the Gospels point to Genesis. There is one great story. The purpose and focus of each book and verse of the Bible is the same. The redemption of sinners by faith in Jesus Christ. That is its central theme. But here's what, here's what he says, John 5. The Father has borne witness about me. He has written about me. We have his word. His voice you have never heard, though, and his form you have never seen, and you don't have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, because you think that in them you have life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Do you see that I am the point you've been looking for? We think all those sacrifices were for. We think the law was for. It was, it was serving you to point you to me. I am the point, but you're blind. You can't see it. You've never seen God. You've never heard from God. You don't get it. John the Baptist couldn't convince you. All the signs I've done can't convince you. The scriptures themselves can't convince you. Verse 40, yet you refuse, 
Some of your Bibles may say you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So what is it going to take? What would it take for Jesus to be standing in front of us, having conversation with us just as he was with them? What is it going to take for us to finally come to terms with the fact that Jesus truly is the Son of God? You may be saying, I've already come to terms with that. I don't necessarily need to really get that. But I think if we can more so come to terms with the truth and the weight and the gravity of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, it will greatly impact our lives and our faith. Would you agree that your faith needs to be deepened and strengthened today in the fact that Jesus truly is the Son of God and that some 2,000 years ago he really did walk on this earth and he really was crucified and he really did have this conversation with religious leaders? Sometimes hard to believe in a world that creates so many stories, isn't it? But there is one story that is true. Only one. You have John, you have works, you have scripture, but it's not enough. So the question we're going to ask today, and this is where we're going to finish out our time together, is asking this question, why do people refuse to come to faith in Jesus? Have you ever asked that question? I presented all the evidence. I answered all your questions. And I think I did a decent job. It seems like you don't have any more objections left. You're just making stuff up now. Or maybe you have someone who, uh, who kind of admits that Jesus really was a real person, and yeah, God is great and everything, but they just don't have faith in Jesus. They don't have saving faith in Christ. Why not? Why do people refuse to come to Jesus, even when presented with all the information that they need? How much information did it take for you to come to faith in Christ? I think the answer is not much. Would you say you know more today than you did before you were saved? How much did you know about the gospel when you first came to Christ? Not much. We came as children, infants, babies into the faith. So how much does it take? There seems to be a problem. Why, when you have all this great information, are you not hearing? Why, when seeing this, why can't you see it? Why can't you hear it? Why don't you believe it? Let's see what was going on with them. Let's see how Jesus talks about what was happening with them and makes some application here. Look at verse 41. So he said, you refuse, though you have all of this. The Father has given his testimony. He has presented his case with much evidence. But that's actually not what you were after. You said you were, but you weren't. So verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe me, and this is really the heart of it, when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? First thing is this. I think we can summarize that problem by saying this. The sinful nature seeks to glorify itself. John 12, 41 through 43. I'll just read verse 43. It says, They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. 
I like for people to praise me, not God. I like that. That's the kind of, that's the glory that I like. The glory that gives God all the praise or the glory that gives you all the praise. Which do you prefer? <laughs> well, ask me on any given day. I don't know. My answer will change any given minute. Do sometimes you like the praise that comes from people? If we are honest, yes. But should we seek to have God glorified above all things? Yes. But the question we have to ask is, was this just true of the Jews at the time? Was Jesus in particular saying, you Jews have this problem, or is it a general problem for all humanity? I'm going to tell you this morning, I, I believe that's a general problem for all fallen humanity. I'm going to read two passages of Scripture here. Philippians 3, 18 and 19. Listen to this. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. Their God is their belly, their appetite. Their God is in feeding their own flesh. To seek glory for yourself is to set yourself in the place of God, the one who truly deserves glory. Who deserves glory and praise? Who is the one worthy of all glory and all praise? God himself. All glory and all praise. That means you don't get any. That means I don't get any. Because if it all is going to him, then there's none left over. We don't get any, but when a little bit comes our way, do we say, no, 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 or do we say, yes, 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 and we eat it. I seek my good, not God's good. I seek my desires, not God's desires. I seek to praise myself, not God. I make the rules, not God. I am God, not God. That's exactly what we're saying. This is what the sinful flesh does to each person. It seeks to glorify itself. Second thing Jesus points out, verses 45 through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. That is an amazing statement right there. He wrote of me. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses, by the way, there's much scholarly debate about whether Moses actually wrote anything at all. But, Moses, but Jesus says that Moses did. So I'm going to believe Jesus over modern biblical scholars. Jesus says Moses wrote it. Moses wrote it. Moses wrote of me. But isn't Moses the one that wrote the Ten Commandments? Moses wrote of me. Jesus. But we're asking the question, why do people refuse to come to faith in Christ? Well, first of all, it's because the sinful nature seeks to glorify itself. And if I come to God, I need to give God the glory? No, 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 no. I'm not giving up my own glory. I like my own glory. I like when people praise me. You tell me I have to give it up? No thanks. The sinful nature, secondly, seeks to save itself. Or you could say justify itself. Both of those work. The sinful nature seeks to save or justify itself.
This gives insight, John 3.20. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Who is that? Who's that? A certain group of people, a couple of people who were born during that time. Everyone who does wicked things. Have you ever done wicked things? Do we do wicked things? Everyone who does wicked things and lives in the darkness hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. I'm not coming to Jesus because all he does is tell me that I'm not good enough. If we submit to the gospel truth, we have to also admit that we are not good enough left to ourselves. I'm broken. I can't save myself. I can't keep the law of God. I can't do enough good in this world. God is all there is. So you're telling me I have to not receive praise and glory from other people, and I have to admit that I'm broken and insufficient to save myself. This is the call of the gospel. This is the humble life. This is why the humble inherit the kingdom of God, because you have to humble yourself to admit that you are not good enough to do it on your own. Is that an offensive truth to say, no one should praise you or glorify you, you're not worthy of it. You can't justify or save yourself, you're not good enough. Is that offensive? Absolutely. And if you've never been offended by the gospel, then you don't understand the gospel. And if you've never taken joy and satisfaction and overwhelming relief, then you don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel tells us that law of God, you shall have no other gods before me when it used to be my God was my appetite, my own sinful flesh. You shall have no idols or worship them. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Keep the Sabbath holy. Honor your father and mother. You've never done that. I've never done that. You shall not murder. And Jesus said, actually, if you hate, that's the same. You shall not commit adultery. You lust in your mind, that's the same. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, lie. You shall not covet. We haven't kept it. Certainly haven't kept it perfectly. Far from it. We are not good enough. So Moses was speaking about someone who was perfect. Who is Jesus himself, the Son of God. The sacrifices were pointing towards a perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. So why don't people come? Because the gospel is offensive. It takes a work of God, by the Spirit of God, to humble the heart and admit that they are broken sinners. And he shines a light on their heart to understand the truth of the gospel. And so that is why we pray, Lord, save. I can't do it. You can't do it. There's not enough evidence in the world. I can't read enough books on apologetics to convince you that the gospel is true. I can't save. You can't save. But God can. God is the one who said, let light shine out of darkness. And until he speaks, there will be nothing but darkness. I want to end with 1 John chapter 5. Uh, this is where we'll, this is our last few minutes. 
Uh, if you would, turn there with me, please. 1 John chapter 5. Now again, this is John, same John that wrote the Gospel of John that we've just been reading. Same truths here. He understands the testimony language that he's been given, witness and testimony. Those are actually the same words. He's been, he's been telling us all about this now. He's going to talk about the testimony, but in a little bit different light. And I want it to encourage you this morning. Listen. 1 John 5, we're going to look at verses 9 through 12. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. So pause for a second. We have the testimony of Jesus Christ here, yes. From men, yes. Accounts from men, yes. But it is also from God. But actually, John is telling us about something even better. Listen to what he says. Whoever believes the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Read that again, verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, in you. Whoever does not believe God has made God a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's it. Verse 12, that's what we need to know. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. That's the whole story in a nutshell. We need the Son of God, and He needed to be the Son of God to do what He did. And we need to have faith in Him and in Him alone. But you have this testimony of God bearing witness to the fact that Jesus is who He said He was in you. I'm going to read a quote here from Charles Spurgeon. It's very short. I was going to it was, it was all so good. I wanted this big, lengthy quote, but I, I got just one sentence here. Here's what he said to his congregation, 1874. Sitting here this morning, he's preaching on this passage. Sitting here this morning, as your soul has burned within you, and your master has been near you, has not that communion given you the spirit been to you a fresh witness to Christ? The question is, has the Spirit of God burned within you this morning saying, these things are true. This is true. And if you are saying that, that is the witness of God in yourself saying, what we are reading here is true. And there's no doubt about it in my mind. Jesus was the Son of God. And I say it today in truth. He was. And if I have the Son, I have life. It is the truth. And that witness is in me and no one can take it from me. You can take my life, but you cannot take the witness of God from me. And it cannot be taken from you. And though you might lose everything else, you can never lose the sun. This morning, I just want to encourage you. Those of you who have heard this testimony of God, and you say, yes, it's true, an encouragement today to rejoice in that fact and to learn that 
afresh today. That's what we need. We need, a, we need a new understanding and to gain better perspective and to take more joy and more satisfaction in the truth that Jesus truly was the Son of God. We need bold faith and we need repentant faith. I have not believed nearly as much as I should have. I have not been nearly as faithful as I should have. But these things that keep people from Christ are the very things that I deal with today. I love praise from people, and I think I can save myself. When will my flesh learn? I can't. I am not good enough, so I rely on Christ. I rely on Christ continually. And His power is made perfect in weakness, so I'll boast all the more of my weaknesses, because when I am weak, then I am strong because I am strong in Christ and in Christ alone. But for some of you this morning, I know there are some in here who, what we've said this morning, there has been nothing inside of you say, yes, that is true. Yes, he is the son of God. Yes. There has been no internal witness bearing to the fact that he is truly the Son of God. And I want to say to you this morning, he is the Son of God. And we believe it to be true. And all it takes is calling on him in faith. For whoever believes the testimony of God that he is the Son of God has life in his name. And when you call on him in faith, guess what's going to happen too? When you call on him in faith, you're going to repent because you're going to admit that you are not good enough. You're going to admit that you could not save yourself. You're going to admit that I am not worthy of praise and glory and honor from men, but only God himself. He is the one who is worthy. And it is only through Jesus Christ and in Christ alone.